Welcome to the NPX Innovation Chattelist Podcast, the podcast where we talk to innovative leaders in the nuclear industry and beyond. I'm your host, Margaret McBeth, co-founder and innovation catalyst at NPX. Today we're speaking with Frishta Fresh Bastin, who's a diversity and inclusion professional, spoken word artist, community organizer, author activist, and religious coffee drinker. She started writing poetry to help navigate her hyphenated, layered Afghan-Canadian identity, including engaging in dialogues surrounding social justice issues at home and abroad. Frishta has performed for over eight years in front of diverse audiences around the world, most recently at the UN Torino Forum for Sustaining Peace. She's been working directly with marginalized and underrepresented communities and their empowerment for nearly 10 years. And to top it off, she holds a master's in international relations with a heavy focus on intersectional feminism. Welcome so much to the podcast, Rishda. Thank you so much, Margaret, for having me. It's uh, really great to talk to you. Before we dig into the, the topic for today, I just have to ask you about uh, the spoken word um, art that you do. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you got into that and, and about what that is? Sure. Uh, but, but before I start, do you want to acknowledge uh, the land um, that this podcast is taking on and that we're having this conversation is on sacred indigenous land. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have this kind of discussions, um, but we also acknowledge and recognize that um, inequity work or, sorry, equity and diversity inclusion work cannot go forward unless we include um, and, and prioritize our indigenous brothers and sisters and community members. Um, I kind of started spoken word uh, poetry about nearly 10 years ago. Um, it was, to be completely honest with you, it was out of complete, complete anger. It was, uh, I was really frustrated with the fact that um, what was represented in the media about what Afghanistan was, who Afghans were, were very negative um, representation. And uh, I was getting frustrated that the only um, uh, association that the land had was to war and pain and trauma. So I started writing to kind of raise awareness about um, uh, the situation of Afghanistan, but also to shed light about the diversity and the, the beauty of the country and the people and the history. And um, I, I was kind of tired of having other people speak on our behalf. So I started writing to kind of um, build a channel of uh, these, these emotions and uh, frustrations, but also to use it as a tool of education uh, to, to further raise uh, awareness and give a different perspective about the country. That's so interesting, and it's it sort of brings to mind this idea that in Canada, you know, we really pride ourselves on being a multicultural country, but often we don't know very much about the cultures uh, and the people that make up uh, the fabric of our country, including the indigenous people mm-hmm. in our country. Yeah. Um, so, and that sort of is a nice segue to the topic for today. We wanted to talk about um, systemic racism what it means to be anti-racist, um, and what that means for us as individuals, uh, for us in communities, and uh, for us that are part of the nuclear industry, what that means and what it is that we can do to educate ourselves um, and to, to make an impact. Um, certainly this year has been uh, a year of many, of many awakenings, mm-hmm. and uh, once again we saw this past summer the spotlight um, really shining on uh, the the impact of systemic racism. Uh, certainly, we saw that with events like the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, and other you know sort of very high profile um, 
episodes uh, that were coming out of the U.S. We've certainly seen it in Canada too. So wanted to uh, invite you into because this is something that um, you're not only I think you obviously have some lived experience with, but something that you do day to day working with individuals and communities. So. Just to start us off, um, kind of wanted to do a bit of uh, uh, anti-racism 101 because um, there's a lot of you know terms being thrown out, and we don't always uh, know what these mean or are comfortable with um, with how we can sort of wrap our heads around them and, and start to integrate them. Um, so I guess just to start us off, I uh, wanted to talk a bit about what it means to be anti-racist and why we use that expression. So uh, uh, Angela Davis says, uh, it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be anti-racist. And uh, that kind of basically means, um, although uh, you know most of us don't really intentionally um, want to harm people or um, uh, discriminate against people, but sometimes based on our biases, our uh, learnings in society, our upbringings, um, where we've, we've, where we've lived and, um, the communities that we've kind of grew up, that depicts and determines, um, how we, uh, perceive the world and other people who look different than us. Being anti-racist basically means that you are actively, um, uh, working towards building a, um, uh, race, racist free world. Uh, you're using your position of power and privilege, uh, to ensure that you're doing your part to uplift uh, and listen to marginalized and underrepresented um, communities and voices, um, and your and, and that work doesn't doesn't really stop or start anywhere. It's it's an ongoing process. It's a lifetime commitment, and it's um, something that you are constantly unlearning and learning about. So uh, I always say that like you know being anti-racist means you're committed to the work, and being um, non-racist just means that you're giving yourself a pat on the back and saying, well, I don't discriminate, so I don't need to do any of the work. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. Um, and often we, you know, when we hear the word racism we or racist, people are very quick to just want to disassociate themselves from that mm-hmm. word and say, mm-hmm. I, well, I'm not racist or mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't hold racist beliefs. Yeah. Therefore, I'm not part of the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and I'm and I, I, sure this is something that you hear. Um, how do you, you know, how do you respond to that when people say, well, you know, I, you know, I I, th- I love everyone. I'm not a racist. You know, like how, how do I? What 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 part do I need to play in, right. in problem solving here? Right. So uh, I'll bring it. I'll bring it back to myself. Um, I'm an Afghan Muslim Canadian woman, um, but uh, my identity, my visible identity, is pretty ambiguous sometimes, and I can come off as white passing. Um, I do benefit. Um, from the privileges of my skin color to give me benefits that, um, uh, you know, a black Muslim might not have uh, or a hijabi Muslim might not have. Um, so that automatically puts me at a, gives me different privileges um, than they do, even though we might share the same religious identity. So that's kind of different between um, acknowledging the privilege that I have, even though I do come from an underrepresented, racialized, um, a marginalized community. Um, I still hold privileges based on the way I look, based on my name, or um, um, yeah, my, 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 the, the way I can speak the language. Um, those give me the privileges immediately, automatically that uh, my other community members might not have. So it's not enough for me to say, you know, well, I'm Afghan, so I can't be racist because I go through these experiences. No, because 
I might have internalized biases uh, or stereotypes of other communities that I have not addressed yet at an internal level. Um, so when we talk about you know folks trying to disassociate from the word entire racism entirely, and they're trying to um, uh, you know not try to do whatever they can to show that they're not racist, the work you know uh, comes to comes from internally, and it's like okay. Uh, it's great that you love your neighbors and you and you treat everyone the same, but you as a person might have privileges and powers that the underrepresented groups who are continuously targeted by racism don't have. So by not doing anything, you're still withholding, uh, sorry, uh, upholding um, uh, the structures of institutionalized racism. Um, so it's not enough to be not doing anything because if you don't do anything, then you're not stopping um, the problem either. So that's the kind of different the distinction is, uh, of course, no one wants to be targeted as, as racist and no one wants to be um, uh, associated with being a racist, of course, but um, it's it's the work that comes in there. It's just acknowledging the fact that you um, um, might have privileges and, and um, powers that a, a person who uh, might not look like you doesn't have. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the response uh, to, to give in that kind of uh, uh, situation. Yeah, I think that's that's a really helpful way to think about it. I, I know for myself, I'm a white woman. Um, I, you know, not uh, someone who thought of myself as quote-unquote racist, but what's been uh, very much a learning process for me is this idea of, you know, um, it's, it's not enough to say I'm not racist. Mm -hmm. um, it's about investigating my own privilege, how my role in society, the actions I take, uphold institutionalized racism, systemic racism, um, and, you know, potentially um, put up barriers for, mm -hmm. for other people that are unfair. Um, so I think it's, I, I just really agree with you, it's important that we're all, you know, really reflecting and having these difficult conversations in this, it can be difficult self-reflection, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't um, are, there's fear. They're, they're scared to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. They're scared to, you know, sort of, uh, make a mistake or admit, um, a shortcoming. And that can be, you know, kind of a, a barrier to this. Um, I think another potential barrier in the workplace is, you know, most workplaces will have like a diversity and inclusion program. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll, you know, as a, a white woman who's been in the nuclear industry for a long time, often I'm a person who's leading those initiatives, yeah. uh, you know, which I think is potentially questionable. Um, but wanted to, you know, kind of dig in a little bit, like how is diversity and inclusion different from addressing racism? Um, and, you know, what are maybe some of the ways that by having diversity and inclusion, either initiatives or, um, you know, people who are in charge of those initiatives in organizations, how, what are some of the, the barriers that you see? So um, sometimes um, uh, folks get a little confused by um, use, tackling anti-racism with just having more uh, people of color on board, or having more people of color, um, uh, BIPOC community members, um, in, you know, on your team. And that's great. I mean, that's definitely a step to have more representation, have more um, uh, folks of diversity on your team, on your on your senior staff, on your on your frontline staff. However, it, it still doesn't address the systemic 
um, uh, racism that might exist in the institution as a whole. Uh, and that can be, you know, as, 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 um, as uh, you know, into, in, in, your, in your HR practices versus with, with how you hire and, and uh, where you hire from, um, to who gets promoted into the leadership positions, um, and what is the kind of work that um, people of color are being brought on to do. Sometimes we see that uh, coordinator positions or the lower positions are usually done by people of color, but the higher senior positions you'll see is usually done by um, uh, white people. So it's it's not enough to pat yourself on the back and say, look, uh, we have more diversity on our on our team because we've hired X amount of um, uh, you know uh, black people or X amount of indigenous people. It's great. It's definitely a start, but then you're not addressing uh, the systemic barriers that might exist. Do your employees feel safe enough to go to your HR and talk about their experiences in your company? Um, are there microaggressions that exist? Are there macroaggressions that exist? Are you um, do do your people do your uh, BIPOC um, employees feel safe enough to come talk to you when an incident has happened uh, in the workplace? Um, these are the kind of questions that um, uh, kind of uh, answer to the culture of the company. Um, and the uh, encouragement of the company when it comes to um, ensuring that you have a, a safe, inclusive, anti-racist space. So um, that's the kind of uh, where the distinction is kind of made. Is although you know, actually, most recently with um, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests kind of picking up um, uh, this year. I mean, it's been around since like 2016. Um, this year, although you know, it's been a, projected on a different level, and it's kind of um, uh, gain more, uh, I guess, like, uh, I don't want to say exposure or attention, but um, it's I brought uh, a lot more people paying attention this time around, I think. And uh, that has encouraged uh, a lot of companies to start hiring DI roles. And it's great, you know, I've seen a lot of like DI manager roles, DI um, specialist roles, but you'll see that it's only one person doing this job. And this job is not a simple job, it's not an easy job, it's not a um, uh, one-person job, as a matter of fact. It is, it is a company commitment that has to go into in, ensuring that your uh, practices and your policies abide by anti-racism um, uh, um, standards. So um, yeah, that's kind of the distinction between um, trying to be, trying to have a diverse and inclusive workspace versus um, uh, having an anti-racist uh, workspace. You know, it's such a good point. We often, it's, you know, kind of, it's a bit of tokenism, right? We have a position, we filled the role, therefore we've checked that box. But it, it has to, it really has to permeate the entire organization um, and how we, um, you know, how we go about doing, doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought up the, the Black Lives Matter protest and we certainly, like we saw, um, we saw these protests happening uh, and still happening uh, in the U.S. There was there were some in Canada, mm-hmm. um, but one thing that you know I do hear is people say, like this is a U.S. problem. You know, mm-hmm. in Canada we don't have these sorts of issues. We don't mm-hmm. have the this you know um, this sort of level of whether it's police brutality or systemic racism or, or just racism in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Wanted to get your sort of feedback on that. You know, um, what are some of the impacts of systemic racism in Canadian society, and, and how do you see that in your work? 
so um, one of the things uh, we have to acknowledge is um, who is saying that uh, we don't have uh, as bad as racism in Canada and in the States. It's always important to um, acknowledge where the narrative is coming from because um, obviously it's not affecting you. You're not going to see it. If it's not in your uh, social sphere, you're not going to see it. And that can come from your social location, that can come from the privilege that you have, it can come from, very much come from your skin color, um, the ethnic background that you carry, all of these, your your uh, social security, This all of this comes to whether or not are you on a regular day-to-day -day basis going to actually interact uh, with law enforcement? Are you going to interact with systematic, systemic barriers? Um, so these are the kind of things we have to keep in mind when, when approaching these kind of this, this topic in, in comparison to comparing Canadian um, uh, issues versus American issues. Um, it's it's interesting because uh, we most recently started to do land acknowledgments, for example, at a lot of events, and uh, companies started doing that before meetings, which is great, but. By acknowledging the land, you also are acknowledging that we are settlers um, uh, on this land. And we come from a history of colonization and continue to come from colonization. That in itself should be proof to us that we still live in a very, um, in, a, in, a, in a racist um, uh, system. Um, very, very much because indigenous communities still don't have access to clean drinking water. So, you know, these, just keeping these things in mind, um, and and regardless of that, I mean, we shouldn't be uh, proud that we have lesser racism. We should be finding pride that we have no racism. That's the kind of country and society and community that we want to build towards and work towards is um, an absolute no uh, and not a racist country at all. So um, with that with that in mind, though, if we bring it a little bit closer to home and we address this. Um, uh, concerns. There's been so many studies um, uh, done of how people with uh, ethnic names have a hard time getting a job, for example. People with Muslim names have a hard time getting a job. Um, if these things are not an indication of the kind of society that we live in, um, then, you know, we really need to start unpacking how we perceive the country based on the social bubble that we're in. Because my lived experience is very different than your lived experiences, right? Uh, my lived experience as an Afghan Muslim um, is very different because I have a history and background of growing up around the 9-11 era. Whereas you might not have the same experience, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So, you know, with that being said, if I, you know, uh, you know, were to apply with a very Muslim name, I will have a harder time um, uh, getting a job versus um, someone who might not have a very visible Muslim name. Um, so these are kind of things that uh, uh, we have to keep in mind um, that still exist and continue to exist. Um, I mean, if we're talking about uh, discrimination with uh, the law enforcement, um, just this year in August, um, the uh, Ontario Human Rights Commission inquiry into racial profiling and racial discrimination of black persons by the Toronto Police Service confirms that black people are more likely uh, than others to be arrested, charged, overcharged, struck, shot, or killed by the Toronto police. And this is, this is statistics. These are stats that, um, uh, that in, you know, in addition to so much data that comes into um, why marginalized people, uh, uh, like black community, um, has a different experience with law enforcement than other communities do. I mean, it's all in the data. And I think we can't, 
be complacent just because, like you said, just because we're in a social bubble or it's not our experience or we're watching media that really puts a focus on, um, you know, events coming out of the U.S., it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist in mm-hmm. our country. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one example recently um, within NPX, we did an event around Orange Shirt Day, which is a day that um, spreads awareness and recognition for residential school survivors. Um, and I was, you know, I was surprised um, by the fact that many people who, you know, came and got orange shirts from us who had lived in this area, which, um, you know, as, as we acknowledge, as we acknowledged up front is the, you know, um, uh, the traditional lands of the, the Chippewas of Nawash and the Saugeen First Nation. Um, if people had no idea that there was a history in Canada of forcibly removing Indigenous mm-hmm. children from their homes mm-hmm. and sending them to um, to schools that were run by um, by white people and really meant to assimilate Indigenous people into um, you know uh, uh, Canadian uh, white Canadian culture. Um, uh, so lack of awareness and you know not not learning about our, not just our history, mm-hmm. but how the impacts of our history are still impacting people today and, right. you know, and what is going on in terms of our own systems and the inequalities in those is, is it's just important for us to be aware and we have exactly. to take that on yeah. um, ourselves. And just to kind of continue from there, I mean, as you mentioned, Black Lives Matter um, Awareness of uh, racism, awareness of, uh, you know, uh, police brutality against uh, BIPOC um, people is nothing new. This is, you know, it kind of feels like we've been um, we've been revisiting this uh, narrative, um, you know, many times, particularly mm-hmm. over the last um, the last few years, especially. So. Um, I guess just wanted to unpack a little bit, like, what do you think is different about this time? Uh, like this, this point in time and the response that we're seeing and how can we, you know, harness the, that momentum? Is it, is that momentum waning or, you know, can we, can we actually continue to, um, to push change forward? Yeah. So, um, like I said earlier, the Black Lives Matter movement has been, has been going on um, since uh, early 2016, um, during the Ferguson protests, uh, during the protests of Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, um, Sandra Bland, and and you know, I remember back then the topic of Black Lives Matter and um, uh, the protests were, was a little uh, quote unquote uh, controversial for people to talk about. Um, I remember it was it was very you know within activist circles within social um, community organizing circles that um, the 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 the, the uh, movement was kind of adopted and taken on uh, for and, and supported by. What the difference I saw this time around was I mean it could be for various uh, a lot of things. Um, it's definitely this time I've seen a little bit more um, uh, pickup and. Um, uh, in uh, support by people who are usually not involved in social justice circles, um, you know, for once being corporations who are who are um, uh, expressing their solidarity uh, with uh, their black community members and the movement. Um, 
And I think I think it has to do with a lot of things. I think it's, I mean, it's always been very blatant uh, if you're paying attention. But now I feel like with the social political environment that we're in right now, um, it's you can no longer ignore it. You can no longer pretend like it doesn't exist. You can no longer brush it aside. It's very loud. It's very um, uh, uh, prominent. It's um, everyone is basically you know talking about it, and it's gaining this kind of attraction. Where I think it's pressuring a lot of people, a lot of organizations, to say something and to address it, um, and to um, um, have some sort of response to it. Whereas before, I don't think that kind of pressure was on, um, uh, at least from, from, you know, regular ordinary people uh, uh, to go back to companies who are not uh, from the black community and say, hey, um, what are your, what's your response to this? This is going on. How are you going to respond to this? Whereas now I think that pressure actually exists and that pressure is coming from allies and, and um, stronger allies. And I think... That's kind of the difference right now, and companies um, are feeling that they now have a responsibility to address these kind of concerns, and uh, in order to protect and to uh, show their support for their own employees, uh, it's no longer what it was, you know, referred to as before, just a political, um, uh, you know, movement. It's it's a it's a social justice. It's a um, uh, you know. Um, uh, equitable, inclusive movement. It's it's a human rights movement, you know, and I think that's the difference now. Our understanding uh, of it is is different. Um, it's better. It's stronger, um, and that comes from, of course, um, uh, the work of uh, our Black community uh, community members and and their allies in pushing this kind of narrative forward. Yeah, that's a really important point and a way to look at it. You know, now it's it's not enough. To, um, to like companies have to address it um, specifically and and are really being challenged to show not just solidarity mm-hmm. but action. Yeah, I think what else is is kind of neat about um, some of what we saw after you know like during the protests were people really speaking out mm-hmm. and speaking out. It was almost like the Me Too movement where you had people say you know. Um, I'm working in this company and there's clearly racism here or yeah. I'm being paid less than my white colleagues. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, we saw we saw a number of high profile CEOs step down. Um, and I thought, you know, that's that's a really important piece too. It's not just um, you know, companies say pledging solidarity or uh, saying, you know, we support Black Lives Matter, we we believe Black Lives Matter, but also um, you know, People uh, who are part of those organizations right. calling out what is what is really going on. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good point. Is that um, I mean, it's it, it's hard because um, unfortunately, in a lot of uh, workspaces, people of color um, tend not to bring these issues up um, because they're worried about being labeled as too political or too controversial or always talking about issues and. Um, you know, and honestly, uh, potentially jeopardizing any kind of uh, potential for, for promotion or for moving up or um, just to like be, be um, accepted uh, in your workspace, you know, uh, it's harder. Um, uh, it's, it, we have more to lose, to be honest. We have more at stake 
than, for example, um, uh, like you know, our white allies to, to, to speak up about these issues and to address these issues. And it's not to say that we need you to speak for us or on behalf of us. Um, it's just, you know, it's to address that we've been talking about this for so many years, you know. Black Lives Matter is, um, um, has, been, uh, has been a movement for so many years and it's beyond just what we know is a movement now. Um, you know, our black community members, our indigenous community members have been talking about this for, for decades, you know, exhaustingly talking about for decades about the inequalities that they face, the discrimination that they face. And it's not up to us to kind of be like, um, you know, I'm going to speak um, uh, for you on your behalf. It's I have listened. I have heard. Um, I have learned. Now I'm going to use my position um, of privilege and power to address these concerns um, uh, how I can with uh, the insight and um, the teachings um, of um, marginalized, underrepresented communities. So I think that's kind of like, yeah, it's, um, it's, I, see, I think we see that kind of change now. Uh, and, it, and honestly, it's, it's, it's hopeful. And I, beyond even just companies, I think individuals themselves are kind of tackling this issue at a family level, you know? I saw, I saw a lot of posts that people saying like, look, I've had very difficult conversations uh, with my racist parents or my racist uh, uncles or aunts and um, cousins. And that's kind of where it starts from, right? Where it's no longer just, I'm going to post on social media about my, my support and, uh, and solidarity. It's, you know what, I'm going to take this as, a, as an individual uh, responsibility and talk to people closest to me. Yeah, to your point, it's, it's, it's beyond just showcasing your own solidarity and actually having those hard conversations, whether it's with your family, your friends, your employer. And I, I so take your point. There's, there's much more on the line for people of color, yeah. um, racialized people, to have to speak out about their experience, mm-hmm. particularly in the workplace. Um, and it's, it, the onus is on all of us, and probably particularly white people more, to be pushing this conversation forward and bringing it to light and calling ourselves out in our workplaces. And and sometimes, you know, we're not going to see real change happen unless we all get political mm-hmm. to some level. And and there is, I see reluctance there. You know, I, I, I've heard people say to me, well, I, you know, I want to be anti-racist and I believe Black Lives Matter, but I'm uncomfortable with the what I see in the protests. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't support... Um, uh, violence in protests, or mm-hmm. I don't support calls to defund the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like, how can we think about that? And how can we engage with some of those ideas and, and start to understand what what's driving that, right? Yeah, so, so let's dive into this one by one. So let's first talk about the um, uh, quote-unquote uh, violent protests. So when we define violence, uh, that comes from our own understanding of what we think of what violence is. What violence is. It, we define it based on what we've been taught, what we learn, our own experiences. We have to acknowledge that oppression is a very violent thing. Systematic, systemic violence, sorry, systemic oppression is a very violent thing. Discrimination is very violent. 
uh, racism is very violent, disproportionately being targeted uh, based on your skin color, your religion is violent. This is how this caused harm to people, um, this caused pain to people. So if we're talking about wanting people to respond to violence with wanting to be calm and collected is is it's really it really makes us it really forces us to reflect how we're, how we perceive as violence then you know and what are we going to pick and choose um, to define as violent and honestly one thing that we need to keep in mind is it is not up to us to determine and to um, uh, say how folks who are directly being impacted by this violent structure of oppression, how they should respond. This is decades and decades and decades of oppression. This is decades and decades and decades of harm and pain that has been caused to these communities. We really need to take a step back and to reflect, you know, who am I to decide how people should respond when they have been um, basically, you know, silent and repressed for so many years. And I mean, legitimately, their lives are on the line. Literally. You are, we are watching day after day, it feels like, video footage of mm-hmm. of people of color being killed right. by the, the by police officers who are, are right. should be there to protect us yeah um i mean i know for myself i don't have a fear that an interaction with a law enforcement officer could end in my death right. but that is a very clearly a very real yeah. real fear and exactly. um um and and reality for yeah. for many people in our society. I mean, and it's interesting because you know, of course, fine. You know, let's let's condemn all forms of violence, sure. But then I want to see that same that same type of energy and that same type of um, bold stance to say you're going to say the same thing about police brutality. Then that I want that same kind of um, uh, response and energy and say, look. Fine, I don't agree with violent protests, but I also am going to take a very bold stance, like I am with the protest, against police brutality and against any kind of violence shown by law enforcement officers. So that's sometimes, you know, the disconnect that I see is um, folks will always be quick to jump and say, well, you know, they're being so violent with their protests and their demands and there are different ways of doing this, but then don't even acknowledge at all um, uh, the very real violence um, that is caused by uh, the law enforcement so or uh, uh, systems of oppression. So um, that's kind of something also to reflect on is okay if you're going to if you're going to say this, then I want you to also recognize all types of violence. It's I think too we forget that you know if you look back at the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. um, you know it wasn't all peaceful protests. Many of those protesters were putting their lives on the line. And we were seeing very similar, you know, um, uh, police forces and people um, being violent towards people who were who were pushing for civil rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it in Canada when Indigenous people are standing up for their land or for the environment. Um, often that results sometimes in clashes with the military. Exactly. Um, it's not, you know, this. 
I think we do have to acknowledge that change, making change happen, mm-hmm. um, and um, and really putting ourselves on the line for human rights mm-hmm. uh, can sometimes be quote unquote violent. Exactly. Um, so you know, with with that being said, um, uh, I think your second part of the question was um, oh, so so around sort of you know um, like we what, how can we think about um, some of the political demands that that come from organizations like Black Lives Matter? How can we um, because it can be very um, alarming for people to hear um, things like defund or abolish the police, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that can be very unsettling. Um, right. and, but how can we understand where these um, demands are coming from and how to, how to think about um, these points of view? So um, I want to clear up a misconception when it comes to um, the statement defund the police. Um, when we say defund the police, we don't mean let's disarm every single police officer right now and tomorrow. We're going to take up the responsibility to protect each other and take in that role um, and build and bring in just uh, social workers to deal with, with um, uh, any kind of uh, criminal um, offense. No, <laughs> defunding um, is, is, is a long process. It's a long-term goal to ensure that the resources and the budget that is being allocated to law enforcement is being managed properly and being used um, to address um, uh, the problems that exist within the law enforcement. So when we, when we talk about uh, defunding the police, um, it's not to say that we are going to take away all our money all at once um, and then that's it, and we're not going to address any other systemic issue, we're not going to address any other um, uh, issues that exist in society that might, um, you know, have caused alteration, alter, alterations with um, uh, the law enforcement. Right now, the way the system works currently, uh, the number of interactions um, with BIPOC communities are disproportionately higher with law enforcement than any other group. Um, Although um, uh, uh, black folks only represent 8.8% of Toronto's population, um, they are one-third percent, 32% of all charges um, uh, in the charge data set, while white people and other racialized groups are underrepresented. Um, with that, with keeping that also in mind, um, uh, black and brown indigenous bodies are higher at being uh, stopped, uh, of being um, uh, questioned than any other race. So this is this is with the current the current budgets, right? And this has been going on for um, um, the last little while. Right now, um, Peel's budget is about, I believe, sixty um, percent of their taxpayer budget goes. Sorry, forty percent of taxpayer dollars in Peel goes towards police. Wow. So keeping that in mind, in the last. Six months, we saw a um, elderly man in Moulton um, that had a mental health crisis that was shot and killed by the police. Yeah. Now, if a law enforcement has this large of a budget and is still having um, uh, still still having interactions with folks with mental health illnesses and then dying at the scene. There has to be something we are doing gravely wrong. Um, 
In, uh, in uh, Toronto, uh, more than 25% of taxpayer dollars are going to police services. So that's 1 billion, 127 million of taxpayer funds are going uh -huh. to police services, the police board, and parking authorities. Only less than 800 million actually goes to TTC, and less than 2% of the city's budget is allocated to health. That's only $69 million. Uh -huh. So these are numbers, okay? So let's just put aside any um, emotional, um, political, or personal attachments to the movement. Given this data, and given the fact that every year we increase budgets, we invest more money into police and law enforcement, and yet the number of deaths are not going down. We're not talking about steady. We don't want it to be steady. We're, we need an, a complete elimination of police brutality, of police violence, of police-caused death. If we are doing, if at this point, with the amount of money and um, a budget that's going into the police, we're still facing these challenges, that means the way we're doing things right now is not working. We have to come up with better ways and better solutions to address it. Like any other problem, any other problem, the, you know, the more you keep hitting something and it's not working, you, you don't keep hitting it. You know, you, you come with different ways and different ways of approaching it in order to address the problem. Defunding the police means you're going to take the money that is originally going to be allocated to the police enforcement and redistributing it to other resources. For example, um, Stats Canada in 2018, I believe, um, said that about 80% of their calls are not um, uh, criminal related and most of them were actually mental health crises. Interesting, man. Yeah. So taking that into consideration, if there is um, that high number of mental health crises, then we should be taking money and investing it in mental health support services mm -hmm. so that these people are have support that they need in order to be safe, keep the people around them safe, so that they don't have instances where they have to interact with the police. Defunding the police also means that the money that they already have needs to be managed better. If they have millions of dollars in budgeting, we have to be very uh, cognizant of where that money is being used and how is that money being used. These are our taxpaying money. So, you know, what is being done to do more um, diversity, equity, inclusion training, anti-racism training, anti-bias training, stereo training, culture sensitivity training, and sometimes it's not even just about um, uh, training, it's, it's um, changing the way the system works, changing the way the, the culture works, the culture of the law enforcement works. Um, of course, um, uh, it's, it's a long process, and I think sometimes people think that um, defunding the police just means we take everything out of their budget and uh, we have absolutely no use for law enforcement and this is going to happen tomorrow. It's a process. It's a long process. It's going to take a very long time, but it's, it's a commitment. And it's just, just to ensure the way we use our money is being used to help the people of our community. It's supposed to help me. It's supposed to help you. It's supposed to help our parents, our siblings. And essentially, that's how we need to think about um, uh, the defund the police movement, is looking at the facts, looking at the data, looking at the statistics, and then say, okay, 
if for so many years this hasn't been working, we do need to look at different ways of approaching the system. That's a really helpful way to look at it, I feel like, to, like you say, remove the emotion from it, even remove the politics. Look at the data. Mm -hmm. What is the data telling us about how effective this system is? Mm -hmm. And and as a, as a society, we need to be more innovative mm -hmm. and, um, and reevaluate mm -hmm. our approach. It kind of strikes me as, like, similar to climate change. Like, we know that this is broken. We have yeah. to change things if mm -hmm. we're going to save our planet. And exactly. some of those yeah. things may, yes, be really upending the way things are done today. Right. But there's a much greater uh, issue at stake that yeah. we have to address. I mean, with climate change, I mean, like, look, we've been recycling, yeah. right? We've been recycling <laughs> exactly. for decades, okay? We've been trying. We've yeah. honestly been doing our part. We've been, you know, have recycling bins in and our homes. And we all feel responsible for it, yeah. right? But, we have but that doesn't mean, like, <laughs> the earth is still getting hotter. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're still, the glaciers are still yeah. melting. Yeah. We're still losing bodies of water. Animals are still getting extinct. Yeah. We're still, you know, still, still experiencing very uh, record high summers. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just, and okay, I've recycled and done exactly. my part. Yeah, we see, we see, and we're all impacted by the exactly. lack of action that we're all taking. Of and course. it's only through collective action and for really changing the way things are now and yeah. getting uncomfortable, potentially, yeah. that we're going to make change. Look, if, we're, if, we, if we want the police to, police, to, to protect and serve, then this is what we're asking for, essentially, yeah. is we are asking to protect us, to protect the communities that you serve and um, that uh, the taxpayer money goes towards, essentially. We're not asking for anything different. It's not a huge um, uh, change in, um, you know, uh, not a, like, a, like a very um, uh, unacceptable uh, demand. It's we're asking if the police is there to protect, we are asking for that protection. Very simple, you know. And, and one of the ways that um, the movement believes is possible is by just managing the money, allocating resources to where, it, um, to where it's needed. I mean, I read a statistic where it was like, uh, on, on average, a night, about 200 women are turned away from women's shelters in Toronto. That's a staggering amount. And if we had, we have the money, but if we just redirected these resources to communities that need them, so that these women potentially don't have interactions with the police or less interactions with the police where they're in safer um, situations, that then this stuff can be a lot. But of course, even then we're saying, but that's not enough. You still need to train um, and to better manage the law enforcement, the way the system works, because you might be... Um, separating the two communities, but if they ever do get into an interaction, you want it to be a safe interaction. You want it. You want the person to feel safe around um, uh, the law officer. I think to your point, it's you know, it's looking at also what are the, the systemic drivers of um, you know that that are causing people of color to and um, and marginalized people to interact with the police, whether it's mm -hmm. poverty or mm -hmm. homelessness um, or lack of sufficient mental health or health care. Mm -hmm. What, you know, ha like you say, we have the money. Yeah. Why aren't we also addressing the root causes? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I guess sort of now, like, and I think it's great to clear up some of these, 
misconceptions that are out there around mm-hmm. racism and anti-racism work and, and the movement. Um, and I think it's really important for us to be able to engage with um, with ideas that might feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that kind of comes to the next point I want to discuss, which, you know, we hear the term ally mm-hmm. and allyship and being an effective ally. Um, and I want to start to break down a bit what, what that means mm-hmm. and what that looks like um, you know, for us as individuals um, and, you know, for for us that are part of organizations and, and communities. So I guess maybe, like, just to start off at the very basic level, um, what does it mean to be an ally? What does that term imply? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, the term comes with a lot of responsibilities, first and foremost. And, um, I mean... Like I'll, you know, as an as an ally myself, um, you know, to the LGBT community or to the Black community, um, racialized community, I had I still have a responsibility because I don't identify with the LGBT community, maybe or the Black community. Um, I still have a, a responsibility as an ally to do my job. It's not enough for me to be like, well, I'm a racialized woman, so I mean, of course I'm an ally. No, it's okay. If I care about these causes and I care for the dignity of all peoples are marginalized people, are racialized people, then that means I have to actively and uh, continuously to learn and unlearn my own biases, my own stereotypes that I might have about other people, um, and kind of do a lot of self-reflection. The first thing with allyship always comes down to self-reflection. Okay, so you care about a cause, great. But what does that mean to you? What does it mean to care? Are you, unfortunately, a lot of times we see is like this, you know, bandwagon allyship where People, you know, add a black square to the Instagram feed and think they've done my check mark and I've done <laughs> um, my work activism work for the day. Um, and you know, it, it comes with okay, what are my positions of privilege? What are my positions of power? How do I fit in society? What are some things I benefit from? What are some things I don't benefit from? Uh, what are some things that uh, I have a, an advantage to? Uh, what what are some things I don't? Um, and once you have this very honest conversation with yourself, then you're able to be a better ally because now you understand um, your own self and how you fit into, into society. Once you have an understanding of that, then you can, um, you know, the first thing is always to listen. Always to listen. What is it that these groups that you are supporting are asking for, you know? We have to be very careful that when we're, we're an ally, that we don't speak for or on top or on behalf of other peoples. That we're there as a support system. We're there to be stand, stand side by side, sometimes behind. Um, we are there to use um, our knowledge, our positions of power and privilege to uplift and to support um, uh, these groups and these peoples. And learning um, uh, comes a lot from, uh, it's, it's challenging, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of work. It sometimes can be uncomfortable. You have to be okay with being uncomfortable. You have to be okay with challenging yourself. You know, you no one's asking you to change your mind overnight. You know, I always say no one's born woke. You know, you're not born into this. It's just something you uh, uh, take on as a task to yourself and as a responsibility to yourself. And you challenge the beliefs that you have that you've always had, that you might not even think you have. You know, we have, we have unconscious biases that are, uh, you know, that are, um, are developed over the years based on what we see in the media, what we hear with our families, that we might not think is a bad thing. But when we challenge ourselves, then we might reflect a little bit more and think, yeah, you know what, this 
inappropriate to think or that's harmful to think. So, you know, it, it's a constant process of learning and unlearning and it doesn't stop anywhere. I think mm-hmm. one of the important things to realize that allyship allyship doesn't stop. You don't uh, put out a statement on LinkedIn and call it a day. You know, mm-hmm. you don't uh, share a couple posts on Facebook and call it a day. You know, it's a responsibility that you also take in your own home. You know, how are you speaking to your parents about this? How are you speaking to your family members about this? How are you speaking to your neighbors about this? Um, and then, you know, you bring it into your, your workplace. You know, are you doing your part to ensure that your colleagues feel safe around you, first and foremost, but also in the work environment that you've created? So um, there's there's uh, a lot of layers and a lot of uh, components of being an ally, but um, it's a commitment, and you have to be ready for that kind of commitment. And you have to be ready for, uh, you know, people of color to call you out, you know? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we think that um, we've done enough and we don't do enough, or, you know, we've done enough and uh, we're doing a great job. We have to be okay when, when you know, someone of these communities say, hey, um, actually what you're doing is pretty harmful, mm-hmm. or I see your intention is great, but I think, you know, this is what we're asking you to do, actually. I think intentions are always in the, good, are in the right place, um, but you have to be okay with the step of learning, of being challenged, challenging yourself, and being on this path of constantly, constantly unlearning and learning. Yeah. Self-reflection is such an important piece, and, and like you say, that be, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, getting comfortable with being criticized, mm-hmm. I, I know that's been eye-opening for me and something I've had to reckon with for myself. You know, yeah. I'm, I, I think particularly as, um, you know, from a, a white person perspective, oftentimes, you know, our voice, there's not challenges to our voices. You know, we don't feel necessarily trepidatious sharing our ideas. And then we think, oh, this is a problem. I know how to solve it. I'm going to, you know, yeah. I'm going to fix racism. Yeah. And, but what we're not doing is listening to uh, people who have, lived experience of it who it's yeah. their day-to-day life who actually know what needs to change yes um yeah. so i know for myself it's really been uh, there's been a self-reflection piece mm-hmm. and and being open to feedback from other people who who will tell me you know you don't you're not the person who needs to be speaking on this or you need mm-hmm. to be consulting with um with with other people mm-hmm. when you're coming up with uh with you know uh, ideas for your company or, mm-hmm. or for how you you want to address this um, so getting comfortable with getting uncomfortable is, uh, and, and again, it's a, like you say, it's an evolving process. Yeah. It's not, you know, we don't, we have to be committed to it and, exactly. um, and committed to, you know, not everybody always liking what we're going to say about it. You're going to experience a lot of pushback, you know, yeah. it's need to be prepared for, honestly, like, you know, we, we, unfortunately we don't live in a perfect world. There are going to be people who uh, are going to think very vastly different than you. And you have to be able to be uh, open to that challenge, but also to know your stuff, you know. I think the one thing that uh, I've learned over the years is um, people, you know, might be frustrated with the way you think as much as you're frustrated with the way they think. But you have to be ready with your with your facts. You have to be ready to to have that knowledge, you know, because they're going to challenge you. They're going to think... Like, well, I don't actually believe what you think is, is um, I don't think your opinion is correct. Um, and you have to be able to be like, why? And you have to be able to back up in your beliefs and be able to um, uh, under- like fully have a good grasp of, of understanding. Otherwise, it becomes very shallow and it yeah. becomes very surface level. That uh, reminds me of um, uh, uh, 
something that happened uh, in our workplace over the summer. We've been, um, you know, we have a, a group of people that's very committed to uh, anti-racism work as individuals and, and furthering that work as an organization. So one of the things we had been doing in our community, um, which is, you know, it's a very white community, mm-hmm. it's a small town in Ontario, um, was, you know, educating our community about um about racism and anti-racism work. Um, and we have some signs that we've been putting out in the community. Um, and and we've had some challenges, which mm-hmm. has been great. Like we've been able to engage in sometimes productive, sometimes not very productive dialogues. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I had uh, one of our co-op students um, was this, this young man from Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one day he was working in the office and a woman came in, an older woman who was very upset about um, you have signage that uh, you know that says end racism and supports uh, Black Lives Matter, and she was very upset about it. And she came in and said, you know, I feel these protests are violent, and I, I I'm I don't think you should be supporting this. And he was able, um, you know, to have a conversation, a very calm and reasoned conversation with her. Uh, and she walked away having learned something and, and, you know, had calmed down. And he said to me after, he said, you know, I'm from Singapore. I have never thought about racism or, you know, anti-racism or uh, civil rights. And, you know, now I feel like this is something I can speak intelligently on because mm-hmm. of the education I've, I've, been, I've given myself. And, yeah. and have. So I just, you know, it's like you say, it's so important that we know our stuff. And yes. we can really just through one conversation enlightened people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, there's a quote by uh, Franz Fanon, he's like a very famous black scholar. Um, he says that he didn't know he was black until he came to Paris, I believe he was in, in Paris. And um, uh, I might be wrong, don't quote me on that, but I believe it was like after he left Africa when he realized he was black. Right, right. And uh, that, I think, you know, holds such a huge... Um, it's such a bold thing to remember because... Sometimes, you know, we don't see things um, because we don't experience them. And we don't think that racism exists because it doesn't directly impact us. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, you know. Look, look, I don't see glaciers melting in front of my eyes, right? When I leave my front door, I don't see it right in my front lawn, right? (laughs) But it does not mean that I do not that I deny the glaciers are melting, right, right? Right. It's because it's not happening in front of my eyes. I can't deny it because the facts are there, the data is there, the real, very real proof is there. So I think that's just something we all have to keep in mind with ev- with any kind of work that we do, but especially with anti-racism work is just because it's not happening to me doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. Right. Exactly. It does that. Um Awareness of others and, and, and empathy, empathy yeah. for other people, right? Yeah. It has yeah. to be at the heart of it. Um, you've given already some really great, I think, um, tools for how we can be effective allies. But do any examples come to mind um, of, of what you've observed as really effective allyship of, of people really fulfilling that role and mm-hmm. doing that work? Um, space is really important. So if we're talking at an organizational standpoint, I think space is really important. Um, giving space to your um, uh, people who identify uh, with marginalized, underrepresented, racialized communities. Um, and that can be anyone from uh, folks living with invisible disabilities, visible disabilities, folks in the LGBTQ plus communities, 
uh, and people from like racialized, marginalized communities. Um, and it's ensuring that you give space to these people in your workspace to feel comfortable enough to talk about issues that exist within your organization. And it's giving them space at board meetings, giving them space um, uh, outside, and not, you know what, and not burdening them to teach you about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know? It's good to get insight, it's good to get their experiences, it's good to learn from them. But it's not to overburden them and say, you know what, since you're our only um, hijabi Muslim in our entire senior staff, we're going to make you DEI manager. No. <laughs> you know, she might want to be, you know, doing another role, but you're now kind of overburdening her because um, she identifies um, with this community and telling her that, you know, now the burden's on you and now the responsibility's on you to teach all of us how to be better. So I think it's just being cognizant of your intentions and thinking, okay, you know, based on the advice, based on the insight of my, my colleagues and my employees, um, let's come up with a strategy to ensure that moving forward, we are more inclusive and we are anti-racist as a company. But it's going to be a process. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be, you know, uh, something that you're going to build uh, and be proud of overnight. But it's going to be challenging. Uh, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some back and forth, but it's commitment. As long as you are committed to this and you're prioritizing it consistently and you're getting the work done to ensure that you are investigating, you know, your internal HR policies, um, you're doing anonymous surveys of your employees to see how they feel uh, at work, um, really looking at the demographics of your organization as to who's getting hired uh, for what positions and being critical about that. Um, these are steps that you can take, um, uh, you know, to address these kind of concerns um, and to and to move forward. A lot of the times, it's also um, uh, a really really good idea, and I always encourage this to get external diversity, equity, inclusion training. To have uh, a, a team come in, to have folks come in and do training from top. And I'm talking like CEO, COO, um, the VP, directors, board directors, managers, and then down to frontline staffers where everyone in the company is on the same page, everyone in the company gets the same level of training um, because that is how you shift culture. And this has to come from the higher position, higher senior position. It has to come from the managers because your receptionist who may identify with these communities but is worried of, getting a, of not getting a promotion, so is never going to talk about uh, anti-racist related uh, issues will not come talk to the COO or the manager yeah. about you know the microaggression they might feel at work if that manager or that senior level position of power hasn't encouraged that kind of environment. So it has to come from top down. They have to be uh, cultivating and encouraging this kind of culture and environment and consistently talking about it. And honestly, walking the talk, you know, taking on the responsibility so that. Every single person in your corporation, in your company, in your organization feels safe enough to come to you when issues do arise, but also you've made it where issues are, uh, there's a zero tolerance policy um, for any kind of racist, discriminatory behavior. All of those are very important things. I think what I would add is also, I think what's important is a culture of transparency and not just being transparent with your employees, but then being transparent with the public 
about, you know, what, what does the diversity in our organization look like? What are we actually doing beyond just Mm -hmm. a statement of solidarity? What are we actually, what steps have we actually taken? Mm -hmm. Um, And things like, you know, in Canada, we have the Black North Initiative. They have a CEO pledge that I think at this point over 300 companies have signed on to, Mm -hmm. uh, which has very specific um, targets and changes that companies need to pledge to make. And yeah. and to your other point, it's, you know, get external help, get yeah. the training that you need, but also you don't, it doesn't have to be done in a silo. You, there are people and organizations like Black North that know how, you know, they can, they can leverage an entire network mm-hmm. of resources and, you know, leadership um, and working with other organizations to see like what's working for you and what's what's yeah. not with let's be as candid as we need to be with ourselves yeah. and reflective as, as organizations yeah. and with other organizations it's, it's okay to ask for help yeah. right it's okay to yeah. say you know what yeah we do acknowledge that we haven't really done much work we haven't addressed these kind of issues uh, our employees don't feel safe it's okay to acknowledge those things. Yeah. Not okay to have it, but it's okay to acknowledge sure. <laughs> it and say that, you know, this is a very real reality of our company and we need help. We need support. And I think that takes courage. It takes um, a lot of, um, uh, you know, understanding and, and care and commitment um, to the work itself. And that says a lot, right, about about you as a, as a manager, about you as a, as a VP or whatever it may be. It says a lot about your... Uh, uh, intentions and responsibility to ensure that your team and your company um, uh, moves forward. And there's been so many statistics done where um, companies that do prioritize diversity, equity, inclusion do way better than companies who don't. I mean, at this point, I feel like you can't ignore the, again, the data, the the business case for diversity is there. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about sustainability, and I mean, attracting young people who are going to be the leaders of tomorrow into organizations. Mm-hmm. I mean, from what I've seen, young people like this is a, a huge issue. This is mm-hmm. front and center for yeah. young people. They want to be part of organizations that um, that have a real commitment and that, mm-hmm. uh, that are uh, are truly diverse, where everyone where there is equity in yeah. the, and everyone has opportunity to to move up and and there's diversity at every level of the yeah, organization exactly um, and, I, and i know that the sorry i know that the the conversation might feel very um like dreadful and maybe um uh discouraging to hear um you know um how much work we have left to do as a country as a community society but i think it's also telling that because so many people want to do the work and so many people are committed to the work, um, I think it just says a lot about where our priorities are and how much we care about this. So um, I hope that not only do we acknowledge that you know we have these issues and we don't pretend they don't exist, but that we uh, uh, take this as motivation that we can do better. We we can thrive and want a better, inclusive world where everyone feels safe, everyone feels included and loved and protected. And that's it's a very possible world because we all want it. Um, it's just you know the work that needs to be done, and it's just something collective that we all need to do as individuals. What are some examples that you've seen um, where you know? whether it's organizations or communities have been able to actually move the dial. I mean, we've seen some really high profile examples of like the 
CEO of Reddit stepping down and giving mm-hmm. his board seat to, uh, you know, a, a person of color. Mm-hmm. But like what, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's my seem extreme. But, but I, I mean, I think we're going to have to make some very seemingly drastic changes in order mm-hmm. to actually um, see change happen. So any like anything that you've observed or that you've heard of that has actually moved the dial yeah, um, I've actually seen a lot of uh, employees kind of uh, write open letters to their to their senior level staff and senior managers, um, and collectively um, uh, come together and say, "Look, um, as employees of this company, this is what we want to address." And um, the senior level management takes it into consideration, and they don't ignore it or they don't shy away from it. They um, uh, have acknowledged and um, seen that this is what our staff wants and this is what we're going to give our staff. This is something we really have to look into. And I think um, that's kind of what I've seen is just um, uh, companies are open, are way more open. I mean, I've seen w- like way more diversity, equity, inclusion roles this year than I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. And... Um, that's saying a lot, you know, um, it's, and although, yeah, we talked about the, uh, the possibility and the very thin line of it being just a surface level, um, uh, a commitment, it still speaks to the fact that companies are paying attention. Corporations are paying attention. Organizations are paying attention. Workspaces are paying attention. And that's why they realize maybe we can disagree with their approach, but it's a step. They have realized this is an issue we need to address. One of the ways that we're going to address it is through money, is to pay someone to come and, and help us do this. Um, and I think that's, you know, really what I have uh, appreciated. I might be a little cynical with uh, the intentions um, of it being maybe surface level and the fear of it just being like a one-time thing, but I'm also hopeful because it's the first time I've ever seen such a large wave of, um, of of corporations and companies being like, yeah, we need a DI manager or DI coordinator um, because we understand that this is important. So you know, I'm I'm hopeful, and uh, that's kind of what I've seen happen, and I um, I hope that that kind of momentum stays, um, and that uh, they hold themselves accountable to that commitment. I I truly hope the momentum does stay, and I think uh, you know. You're right. Like if you have commitment from the top, if you're putting your like you're putting your money where your mouth is, mm-hmm. and actually, yeah. you know, bringing people in, paying people more, um, promoting people from within, mm-hmm. you know, having that diversity all throughout your organization. Uh, I think those are the uh, at the end of the day, you know, again with the data, those are going to be the companies that rise to the top and are are most competitive exactly. and and yeah. most sustainable. Um, this has been like such a great conversation, and I hope that this is a dialogue that uh, that we can continue. Um, but just to maybe wrap us up, I'd be curious. Um, to kind of hear from you, what are some resources that that you love on this topic, whether it's books or podcasts or just people to follow? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who who's inspiring you and who is yeah. uh, helping you with this work right now? Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Angela Davis. Yeah. Uh, she writes an incredible book on um, race, class, and theory. Um, uh, and it's uh, she tackles a lot of things of 
how intersectionality is incredibly important when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion work. Um, Desmond Cole wrote a book about um, the skin we're in, um, uh, talking about the lived experiences and the very um, uh, 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 unfortunate circumstances um, uh, of uh, Black people living in Toronto. Yeah, great Canadian uh, Canada. Yeah. perspective from him. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So uh, Desmond Cole and Angel Davis have been my most recent inspiration and go-to in learning. Uh, about this uh, and there are um, so many organizations online they're doing incredible work um, I work for um, a company or a nonprofit that does diversity equity inclusion training uh, and we work with so many organizations that um, directly um, uh, are doing this work on the ground uh, and there's so many resources out there that you can benefit from that you can learn on um, but if you're someone who's incredibly curious about um, the Canadian context to all of this, I would definitely start with Desmond Cole's book first um, to get an idea and to kind of place yourself um, in that perspective. And then if you're interested in theory, um, you know, Bell Hooks, Angela Davis does incredible work on uh, race and class theory. Great, great suggestions. Uh, we echo those. Um, thank you so much, Rishta. It was thank amazing you. to talk to you. I really appreciate your, your insights today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the NPX Innovation Chatalyst podcast. To hear the full podcast and to subscribe, you can go to Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever podcasts are available.